Welcome to Bread and Thread, a podcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz. I'm Hazel. We are two friends who studied archaeology together and love history and making things either historically related or not. And we normally like to start off the podcast by talking about what we've been making and or baking recently. So what have you been up to before we get to today's main topic? Not a huge amount because I've had an incredibly busy week at work. Um, although autumn is here, so I have been making myself chai lattes and things. Oh, nice. So it isn't really something I've made. I didn't blend the spices, but it makes me happy. <laughs> and my Halloween soaps are curing. Yes, I I now possess one of these soaps and it's excellent. They have little bats on top. They have little bats on top. They're stamped with a crescent moon and some stars. And yeah, they still need another week or so to cure. But Hazel was here, so I gave her one so I wouldn't have to post it. Did it survive the journey back then since it's it not did. fully cured yet? <laughs> it did. It's good. I'm excited to use it eventually. It's not that much longer. But in the meantime, I have my box of handmade soaps. <laughs> like a soap dragon. You're my soap friend. I am a soap friend. Um, oh yeah, Nick called you my special interest friend today. <laughs> Just thought that needed sharing. <laughs> well, they're right. They are. It's just, it's a fun phrase. Um. <laughs> what have you been making or baking? Indeed. Um, yeah, well, I know what you mean about those autumn feels, because I made my first soup of the season today, Ooh. and it was so satisfying. What was it? It was leek and potato, a classic. Classic! Mm. I'm having that next week, actually. <laughs> Great minds. <laughs> You're also my soup friend, as well as my soap friend. Soup and soap. I'm gonna stop now. <laughs> um, yeah, but it was delicious, and we ate it as the rain was coming down and and drumming on the windows, and it was um very. Just it was correct. a mood. It was a mood. Um, Just the correct way to experience soup. Yeah, although the recipe told me not only to use the white part of the leek and none of the green part, and. I didn't feel good things about that because, to me, the green part tastes more leaky, so I put some It really does. Part. It makes the soup turn a horrible swampy green if you use the green part, but <laughs> it tastes nicer. Mine didn't go terrible, I think. It was it was a nice green, I think. Maybe, maybe anyway. I just used too much leek. <laughs> too much green. But also, if you use too much potato, it ends up really gluey texture-wise. That is true. Fun. I've learned that the hard way. You've got to use, like, equal amount leek and potato. Yeah, like, I make uh, garlic soup, which has a bit of potato in it as a thickener. But if you put too much potato in, you just end up with garlic-flavoured glue. Mmm, hot starch. Delicious. <laughs> anyway, so apart from that, um, I've been spinning a little on my tiny Turkish spindle. Um, that, by the way, is my spindle that is made out of bog oak. So cool. <laughs> it's 
very cool. And I will not be missing the chance to say that every time I mention it. Um, <laughs> so I've just been spinning some of my um, merino that I have left over um, from some previous spins. And it's a rainbow, which is quite interesting because I'm spinning a lace weight. And when you spin a multicolored um, top, down into a lace weight yarn, you get some interesting color distribution. So like from far away, it looks kind of like one color, but then you get up close and it there's multiple colors. I like it. Secret rainbow. Yeah, secret rainbow, exactly. <laughs> so, um, I mean, it's slow going because turns out spinning lace weight by hand is very slow going, um, but I enjoy it. I just do it while I'm watching TV and stuff or on the train sometimes <laughs> and i'm sure you get some absolutely fascinated looks we're, we're getting through um then i've also been back to some knitting given the autumnal feels um so i have actually finished my unspun yarn shawl um oh, nice. yeah so once i've blocked that i will put up a picture of it it's really cosy, actually. Um, so I can't wait for it to be cold enough <laughs> so that I can wear that <laughs> outside. Um, yeah, and that's me. So what what are we learning about today? Related. Um, today, we are, we are doing what I'm going to call... Heritage sheep breeds, part deux. Oh. <laughs> so if you're a long-time listener of this podcast, you may remember that in episode four... Did that long ago? It was episode four. <laughs> uh, I talked about some heritage sheep breeds. And those included... Uh, let me go way back in my notes. Uh, I remember I, Icelandic sheep. Yes, yeah, there was Icelandic sheep. I talked a bit about Shetland, uh, Jacob, Caracol sheep, which are one of the oldest sheep breeds, uh, Herdwick and Wensleydale. So, um, yeah, that was really fun and it made me very happy. <laughs> I just I just like sheep. Um, <laughs> I'm excited to learn about more kinds of sheep. Oh yeah, so there are, there are going to be more sheep, and it, there was always going to be a part two, because there are just so many sheep that you can talk about, and they have different characteristics, and there's different stories about them, and oh boy, have I got some stories for you today. Stories? Sheep stories? Yep. Uh, some yarns, you might say. I might, <laughs> but I won't. But I will. So, <laughs> you can tell how excited I am about this. This has been a long time coming. Um, and there was, uh, I think most of the ones I talked about were European breeds last time. So we're going to get a little bit more further afield this time. But I mean, we're still only scratching the surface. So there's probably going to be a part three. Maybe in another two years. <laughs> Once you fall. Biannual um, sheep episode. Yeah. 
<laughs> give everyone a bit of a break from the sheep for a bit and then we'll go back. <laughs> so I picked out a few different breeds to look out. Well, I picked five, um, but we'll see how far we get because it turns out there's quite a lot to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to start off with one of the older breeds on my list, which is the soy sheep. And this is the oldest or like one of the oldest at least breeds in the UK. Very cool. And they come exclusively from the island of Soy in the St Kilda archipelago in Scotland, which is one of the most remote places in the UK. It is off the western coast of the Outer Hebrides. So it's also the westernmost point of the UK. Oh, so it's like outer Outer Hebrides. It's way out there. I I think it's something like 40 miles to the Isle of Harris, which is the Outer Hebrides. Outest Hebrides. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's even outer. And they are just kind of adorable. Um I'm going to send you I'll send you this image. All there's going to be a lot of pictures of sheep. And I will be putting them up on the Twitter, of course. Then I will transfer them to the Tumblr. <laughs> um, but I'm going to briefly describe them as well um, for anyone who can't be bothered to find the Twitter. Oh, they've um, got very goaty faces. Yes, they are often mistaken for goats. And that is because the Soe sheep are very small. They're like a third of the size of a modern domestic breed. So teeny, like sheep aren't that big. Yeah. <laughs> well, originally, of course, they were a lot smaller, and these are one of the most primitive sheep breeds um, in Europe. So, yeah, they are very kind of small and almost goatee looking, and they've got horns as well. So they're quite small, relatively kind of slight looking sheep. They've got a woolly coat, um, and they are horned. Um, they've got the the rams have these brilliant curling horns um yeah so they are a very hardy breed they can survive in very bleak conditions which is good because they have to um there are some uh outside of the original um place that they come from now um so they have they have spread a little bit so They've been there at least since the Viking Age, probably. They're sheep island sheep. They are. They're sheep island sheep, <laughs> which is fantastic. Um, and one of the other markers that they're a very old kind of sheep is that their fleece sheds naturally, so you don't have to shear them. Um, the way that the wool was traditionally gathered is what's called ruing, which is where you just go up to the sheep and you pull off the loose wool. That's it. It just comes off easily. So I'm just imagining that you're just having a nice walk in the in the outest Hebrides and you see someone just pulling wool off a sheep. Yeah. Just just plucking the sheep. <laughs> As you do. Um, and as the people 
of St Kilda would do every year, um, going from the main island of Herta over to Soy, which is separated by a channel that's not very big, um, but it still keeps the sheep on there. And they would go every year to um, get wool from the sheep. The sheep. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so there is another breed that was uh, used for domestic use by the islanders, and that was um, the what is now known as the Boraray sheep, um, which uh, is another very rare breed. Um, but the Soe sheep are the older animal. Um, what, what do you mean by domestic use? I'm imagining just like a sheep wandering around the kitchen. <laughs> So these, the soy sheep, were basically living wild on this island um, for most of the year. Um, and whereas for the more like farmed type of sheep, um, that is, is the other one, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Um, although they have now become feral, the other ones. Amazing. Feral sheep. Feral sheep. Um, I guess it's less of a concern than like Shrek the sheep if they shed naturally. Exactly, yeah. And because of this natural shedding, they're much less pr prone to fly strike, um, mm -hmm. which is a disease that can affect most kinds of sheep if they're not shorn. Um, yeah, don't don't Google that one if you've just eaten. Yeah, it's um, it's it's pretty bad, <laughs> but um, much less likely to affect the soy sheep even if they're not shorn because um. I think it's the the ewes that don't lamb um, usually don't shed their fleece, but even so, uh, they're less prone to fly strike. Mm -hmm. So there we go. The St Kilda Islands were completely evacuated in 1930 at the request of the islanders. So they're now uninhabited, except by sheep. Why? Why did they request to be evacuated? Because it is actually really hard to live in the Altest Hebrides. Um, that makes sense. Yeah, and I mean, people had lived there for a long time. There's evidence of Iron Age habitation on the islands. Um, but for various reasons, in the 19th century, it just became harder and harder, and um, people had to rely on imports and, and supplies being got to the island and then a lot of people emigrated to Australia um, and the people who are left couldn't really sort of maintain the um, weren't able to, to be self-sufficient and yeah, I guess as well like highland clearances would have made them even more remote further away from concentrations of people mm-hmm Possibly so, yeah. I'm I'm not sure. I think also apparently um a factor was that they were getting in World War One, they were getting regular deliveries from the naval ships that were stationed there, um, which kind of made it a bit easier. And then they didn't. <laughs> um and so in nineteen thirty they were down to about thirty-two people. And they just went, This actually sucks. Pretty much. <laughs> just like, can you come and take us back now? <laughs> um but I mean, I've also read some moving stories about people who, you know, didn't really want to leave, but it was necessary. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, so, um, so there you go. But they did leave some of their sheep behind. 
Um, and the Soe sheep in particular, they were soon after, I think it was two years after the evacuation of the islands, um, they took a few islanders back to help them bring some of the Soe sheep onto the main island um, as a grazing flock. And those sheep are still there. Um, and they are now, again, basically feral most of the time. And they are just, I, if, if you look up St Kilda, you'll see pictures of these sheep just wandering around this abandoned village. It's, it's an amazing sight. Um, and apparently they've got very used to people because you can visit St Kilda. Um, so yeah. Can <laughs> um, you pluck the sheep? Uh, you probably could if they'd let you get close enough. Um, it feels like a fun, like, short holiday. Um, so also, this isn't quite the end of the story because uh, there is a very long-running study, scientific study, that has been um, studying this population of sheep. And that is because they have some really interesting population dynamics. So this started in the 1980s. Um, and it is, uh, hold on, let me check the project. Um, oh, here we go. So the, the St Kilda Soy Sheep Project. And they began to do this research on the sheep um, in the 20th century. Uh, in fact, in the 1950s. Um, so the the project that I looked at ran from the 1980s. Um, but there's been research on this particular population of sheep since the 1950s. Um, and there's, so there's a lot of research that's come out of this. And I've seen some of the studies and they're on things like um, the sort of diet of the sheep and how it affects them and their sort of population dynamics, the parasites, like all sorts of things. Um, but it's, it's actually quite interesting, although I don't understand most of it. <laughs> um, but um, might yeah, the, read. the interesting population dynamic is that they have a lot of population crashes. So that that can mean up to 70% of the population can crash in in a single year wow um, yeah so it, and it, they'll just they'll the population will increase and then crash and then increase again and just keep doing it um and people Why? Are like, this is interesting it turns out it might be but it's probably because they're actually kind of a bit too a bit too good at being sheep. Um, <laughs> too good at being sheep. <laughs> yeah, they're actually they're a really hardy breed, mm -hmm. um, and almost all mature ewes will become pregnant every year. So the population increases quite rapidly. Mm -hmm. And it can increase very rapidly to a size that will exceed the number of sheep that can survive in the winter on that island. Um, so I'm sad now. I know, I know. But it is, you know, it's just um they're just out there living. <laughs> um 
and they're mostly unbothered by people apart from the researchers who go uh, for the research season. And there is a section on the St Kilda Soy Sheep Project website about volunteering. Oh. <laughs> and they take volunteers on their research expeditions where you spend like a month on the island which has no internet or like phone reception. Um, and what you is- just... You just hang out with the sheep and like study them and it sounds like them. just the right amount of time to be without internet and you get <laughs> to hang out with some cool sheep. Yeah. So apparently it's uh, excellent training for prospective PhD students or anyone thinking of a career in ecological or behavioral research. So there you go. Um <laughs> That is the sorry sheep, and there's a lot more to it than it first appears. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go across the pond now, and I'm going to talk about one of the earliest American breeds. Do tell. I will. Uh, <laughs> so this is, and I've got another image here for you, the American Tuna's sheep. It looks so silly. So this sheep is, um, it's got kind of a long face and like kind of floppy ears. Um, and this, the, this one, the picture I sent you, I think is a, a sheared one. Um, but they also are a kind of fat-tailed sheep, more of which later on. So they're a bit chunky in the rump. And they are a breed that was developed for producing both meat and wool. In 1799, uh, some fat-tailed sheep were imported to the US and they were a gift to the United States from His Highness the Bay of Tunis, the ruler of Tunisia at the time. Do, do now, we know why he decided to give the US some sheep? Yeah, I was guessing. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. I haven't been able to read anywhere why particularly. It's um, just like, hey, have some thick sheep. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it was very well appreciated by the sounds of things. <laughs> but these sheep were crossbred with European varieties to produce the American Tuna's sheep. Um, so they are, again, quite hardy. They're known for their resistance to disease and they are tolerant to both warm and cold climates. Um, and yeah, they, they are one of the oldest breeds in the United States. And um, they are not so well known today um, due to the introduction of the merino sheep, which has a very fine wool that became sort of the more dominant sheep. Um, but they are still 
quite popular for being just a good a good solid sheep yeah and I just I, I don't have loads to say about that but I just liked it for the for the interesting historical footnote that is, the, that is very fun <laughs> also they are described as having pendulous ears and I like that mm. So they are still, I think, quite popular more in the eastern US um, and heritage breeds in general, I think, are becoming a bit more popular. Um, so there's it's, it's looking good for them. Um, but I think, actually, I think I am going to go on to the fat-tailed sheep next. Yes. Because... Yes! <laughs> that would make a nice segue, I think. So, going further back in this breed, um, I'm going to talk a bit about fat tailed sheep. Okay, let me find a good picture because. I think I shared a picture of a fat tailed sheep in the Patreon server once, and we we're all just boggling at the sheep yes um i think i did mention it in possibly in in one of the previous episodes so i'm not sure what particular breed these are but the picture that i've just sent to liz are some again kind of goaty yes. looking sheep with... With a... It looks like they have a human butt. <laughs> it does. That is how I will describe these sheep. They look vaguely goaty and like they have human butts. <laughs> so yeah, to use the language of the internet, they are dummy thick sheep. <laughs> <laughs> and so the the fat-tailed sheep um is more of a type of sheep. Um, and there are specific breeds within that. Um, but I, I just couldn't pick one because they all make me so happy. <laughs> They're wonderful. And these are much closer to the OG sheep because, as I mentioned, um, in the last Heritage Sheep episode, uh, <laughs> the domestication of sheep occurred in Central Asia. And um, these, the original sheep were hair sheep, so they didn't have wool. And they were not originally used for their wool, of course, because they didn't have any. Um, they may have been, they were used for pelts. They were almost exactly goats. <laughs> yes. Spent a lot of time reading about this. <laughs> As Liz well knows. Um yeah, and so the fat-tailed sheep was one of the earlier um, evolutions of the sheep. And we know this because we have records and images of fat-tailed sheep dating back to at least 3000 BC. Which is incredible. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, so coming from the ancient cities of Eastern Asia, like Ur, 
um, and ancient Sumer. So uh, there is also a more recent one that I would like to show you. I'm excited. Which that comes from an early church in Antioch, dated to around 475 AD. So not quite as ancient, but that's very good. It has to be shown. Um, yeah, it's and that really horns and everything, <laughs> and that is quite recognizable. And it does have a chunky rump. It does, and a chunky tail. Um, so there's actually two kinds of fat-tailed sheep. There's the fat rump type and the fat tail type. So particular um, kind of breeds of fat-tailed sheep will have these fat deposits in different places. So for example, there's the Damara sheep, um, which is a kind that originated in uh, Northern Africa and is used in different parts of Africa today. And it has the fat mostly in the tail. So these tails just look really chunky. Um, and whereas the, the picture that I've sent you, they have it concentrated more in the rump. So the reason that they have these fatty deposits is kind of like the same reason a camel has a hump. So they can use them as energy reserves if they can't get sustenance from anywhere else, um, which makes them a breed that is very well suited to more sort of arid climates or places where it's more difficult to survive. And there are both hair, hair I was going to say hairless, but they're not hairless. <laughs> there are both hair sheep and wool sheep versions of the fat-tailed sheep. Um, so their, their hair sheep in particular are very good at thriving in hotter climates. Um, so yeah, the caracal sheep, um, which I also talked about in the first sheep episode, is a kind of fat-tailed sheep. And that is, is still popular to this day. And these sheep can be found in the modern day um, all across the Middle East, Asia, um, into China. And they're, they are just thriving. Absolutely, absolutely thriving. Um, oh, and also, <laughs> I want to mention that the tail fat um, has also been used historically in cookery. Uh, and in fact, it's mentioned in the Bible. <laughs> using the tail fat of a sheep. Amazing. So they are they are a super ancient kind. Um and it's easy to see why they have been popular for so long is because they are just so useful and so hardy. So that is the fat tailed sheep. And it's, it's you can you can find some of them with just the absolute thickest tails you could ever imagine and i'm very happy that i got to talk about that <laughs> uh, okay so my next sheep is the badger-faced welsh mountain sheep badger-faced <laughs> badger-faced 
And I will show you what I mean. Oh my goodness. So we are um, roller coastering our way back to the UK now <laughs> to talk about the badger-faced Welsh mountain sheep, which is quite a mouthful. Um, and as you can see, Liz, they have a distinctive black stripe over the eye. It makes them look like a badger. Yeah, that's why they're badger-faced. <laughs> I ca I cannot deny that face is badger. <laughs> um, and so partly I I wanted to include this one because of the name. It's amazing. Um, <laughs> but also, um, because of their markings and their sort of history in Wales. Um, so again, they are an old breed, not as old as the Soe, um, but they have been kept in Wales for hundreds of years. And oh, they, they actually have similar colouring to the Soe, um, but there is a particular kind of colouring or more two particular kinds of colouring seen in the Badgerface sheep and so they come in two kinds of coloring the torthy and the tor wen wen is white so means black-bellied sheep and is mainly white uh, with a black underbelly and they have the the badger face the eye stripes and then the tor wen is the reverse so they're black with a white belly it's very confusing that they're named after the belly colour and not the majority colour. <laughs> I guess it's less confusing when you know the Welsh word for belly, which and I, I knew the colours, I didn't know belly. Ah. So this is the other one. And you can see it's a really distinct, like it's just the belly mm. that is white, and the rest of the sheep is just completely black. That's bizarre. It's like it's been lying down in bleach. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a funny sheep, and I just realised the picture I've, I've sent you, um, that sheep also have some quite magnificent testicles. I think the first one you sent does as well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've also noticed that the stripes aren't actually over the eyes, they're above it, so it looks really angry. So it's thought that um, possibly at one time they were mostly coloured, but uh, because of the cloth trade in the Middle Ages, um, they were selecting more for a white fleece mm -hmm. uh, because that would fetch a higher price because it could be dyed. Um, Are you saying so... that these were the black sheep of the family? <laughs> I guess. <laughs> um, but but that's the reason why the um, the Torthy, the white sheep, uh, more common today, but I I don't know. I think the other ones look really cool. Um, I think I think the tall wen is more what I would like to have a field of. Mm -hmm. But I can see why you would prefer a paler coat if you wanted to dye it. Yeah, that said, I like the idea of committing and just producing a load of knitted things all in black. 
oh that's cool like goth knitting yeah and you can use the wool off the belly for accents oh good idea yes you could get just like and you could blend them as well so you could get multiple colors Mm. from the same fleece that's fantastic um interestingly apparently the badger face gene is quite common around the world um are you telling me there's other sheep with angry eyebrows apparently so um it's it's kind of like a naturally occurring gene mutation amazing and it's thought that they are again an older breed uh because there is an alternative name for the torthy coloring uh, which references the 17th century saint, Saint Idlos? Idlos? I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Um, <laughs> but anyway, it's a 7th century saint. <laughs> um, and so that, that might be, that might mean that the breed itself is at least that old, but it's um, difficult to tell. Um, although I did find a very interesting article uh, on the origin of European sheep, as revealed by the diversity of the Balkan breeds and by optimising population genetic analysis tools. <laughs> Monkey. Um, which sort of genetically traced um, the, the ancestors of European breeds. Um, using genetic techniques. Um, and and found that a wave of migration is thought to have introduced wool wool growing sheep into Europe, um, replacing most of the hair sheep that were there originally following the the original domestication um, that had spread into Europe. So um there are second wave of sheep. They are a second wave sheep. Um, and the fat-tailed sheep kind of expanded around 3000 BC um, over Central and Southwest Asia and East Africa. So that's that's how the fat-tailed sheep got around. Um, so, yeah, anyway, I digress into... A long, adding to the long list of things I'm not on this podcast, I'm not a geneticist and I'm not entirely sure what all of that means. So... <laughs> back to the sheep <laughs> um and yeah I'll, as i say all of these uh sheep pictures will be on the podcast so you can enjoy they'll be on the podcast the the, the um well i'm i'm painting a picture with my words um uh, but also they'll be on the twitter <laughs> they'll be on social media yes <laughs> so you can enjoy the badger the badger-faced welsh mountain sheep in all its glory uh, so I do have one final sheep I'd like to talk about, if we have got time. I think we've got time. Excellent. Uh, because the Navajo Shuro sheep is fantastic. I have seen some pictures that have absolutely magnificent horns. And I'm just trying to choose the most magnificent. Oh, here we go. Yeah, so this breed uh, can have four horns. Amazing. And here is a ram. Oh, golly. <laughs> it's incredible. 
So this is a a wool sheep. It's it's got a woolly coat, um, and it has kind of an adorable face with you know these little ears, and then it's got four massive horns, and they're all curly. Four, I say. <laughs> yes. Uh, I yeah, I don't know what to say. They're amazing. Um, <laughs> they kind of the bottom ones curl down and round like framing its face like early 2000s hair and then the top ones are just really long regular sheep ones this sheep is just really into the y2k revival (laughs) it's it's going for the rachel (laughs) i picked the sheep because i mean one it looks amazing uh, but also the clue is in the name and there's a reason this is called the navajo churro sheep So this is another breed that is found in North America and developed there. And um, I bet you thought we weren't going to get to colonialism in this one, but uh, we are. I am shocked. (laughs) Um, So these sheep are descended from Spanish churra sheep that were imported to North America in the 16th century by the Spanish. So into the southwestern part of North America. Sorry, that doesn't make any sense. The southwestern part of what is today the United States of America. Um, (laughs) And and that is where uh, they developed. So they were imported by the Spanish um, for the purpose of producing cloth and also meat. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, they were also... Um, taken up by the Navajo people, um, the indigenous people of that area, for use in, um, well, for use um, for meat, but also they were used extensively in weaving. It does look like it's got quite a long staple length from the picture. Oh, yes. Yeah, they do have, they are quite a long wool, and that makes it very good for spinning. Um, which is one reason that they were bred by the Navajo to become the Navajo churro sheep, um, which is excellent for spinning. Um, and yeah, so I'm pretty sure Navajo weaving is probably world famous at this point. Um, yeah. Uh, but if you haven't seen any, then do look it up because it's, it's an incredible art form. Um, and following the introduction of these sheep, um, their wool started to be used in traditional weaving, uh, whereas before they had been using cotton. Um, and so for several centuries, um, the, the wool of the Navajo Churro sheep has been used in traditional weaving. Um, and there are just absolutely beautiful pieces that have been produced. Um, using the wool of the sheep and for all sorts of uses, including blankets and like saddle blankets and and all sorts of things. Um, so it yeah, it was a really flourishing as a breed. Um, unfortunately, during the nineteenth and twentieth century, there were efforts by the U.S. authorities to quote unquote improve the breed um, because it was considered an unimproved sheep 
um, and those deteriorated the quality of the wool. The unimproved sheep. Yeah. There was this whole like 19th, early 20th century thing for trying to improve agriculture and make it the most efficient and uh, yeah, <laughs> sometimes it wasn't. They weren't just doing a racism. Uh, no, I mean, it was also a racism because, like, a lot of the um, the flocks belonging to Navajo people were decimated by the US, like... Oh, yeah, obviously. As part of, you know... But specifically um, the phrase unimproved. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that was also just a thing. Um, like, that's also one reason that we, again, we don't have a lot of these heritage varieties of anything agriculturally today is because um because of this effort to sort of make agriculture more efficient mm -hmm. um and grow you know more monocultures of certain improved kinds of crops and um Ooh. yes um and then people start wanting to preserve these heritage varieties um and so i mean there is there is now i mean these sheep are now quite popular and there is an effort, there's a breed society for them, and there's an attempt to preserve them. So they're not, as far as I know, in danger, but they are considered a heritage sheep. Um, yeah, and so with that, ends my tale of sheep for today. Until next time. RPG ideas should be good, right? But what this podcast supposes is, maybe they don't have to be. The Probably Bad Podcast brings you ideas like dire humans fight your GM in real life, and what if there is an eye laser man? Listen to the Probably Bad Podcast, available everywhere podcasts exist, and some places where they don't. Oh, our local louder this week was requested by Erica on the Patreon Discord, which you can join by going to patreon.com slash bread and the bread. Um, and it is Michigan's favourite ice cream flavour, Superman oh. ice cream. Is that a flavour? It, it is not Superman flavoured, but it is called Superman ice cream. Okay. Okay. That... With Hazel. It is vivid. Unnatural, does not look like food, looks like the stuff they throw at each other in the movie Hook. Red, yellow, and blue ice cream. That is certainly some primary coloured ice cream. Um, so the first thing to note is that it is completely unaffiliated with DC Comics. It's purely just named for the colours. Okay. Um, the story, although there are some people who doubt it, is that it was invented by Stroh's Brewery in Detroit, in Michigan, as a thing that they could make legally during Prohibition. Right. <laughs> An ice cream brewery. Well, I mean, it's... they've got vats. <laughs> We probably need vats to make industrial amounts of ice cream, right? I guess. Um, 
So the yellow flavour is generally lemon. Okay. Oh, it's multiple flavours. Oh, yeah. The colours are all different flavours. Oh, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, so the yellow flavour is traditionally lemon, although on the list of common flavour combinations for Superman ice cream on Wikipedia, most of them are vanilla. Hmm. Um, the red flavour is often cherry now, or sometimes strawberry. Um, but it was originally um, red pop, which is a very local flavour. It's a, um, a Michigan strawberry pop. And then the blue flavour is blue moon. What is that? This um, so is a mystery in itself. There's layers <laughs> to this. Appropriately, there's layers to the striped ice cream. Okay. Um, some people think it tastes of almond. Some people think it tastes citrusy. Some people think it tastes like fruity cereal. Some people <laughs> think there might be marshmallow in it. People are just out here making up flavours. Um, apparently, yeah, multiple sources accredit it to a man called, um, Bill Sidon, or possibly Sidon, um, who is an Austrian chemist who fled the Nazis and created the flavour, um, so presumably this flavour wasn't part of it in the 20s. Um, created the flavour while working at Petron Products in the 1950s, which does own the patent for the Blue Moon flavour. Unfortunately, I can't find anything saying what flavour the blue was when it was invented, because presumably if it was invented but in the 50s, they can't have been using that flavour in the 20s. But yeah, it is a mystery flavour. <laughs> this is so incredibly niche. I love it. It's so good. I'm I'm very happy that Erica suggested this because there's so many, there's layers. <laughs> um, there's more than meets the ice cream. People have tried to replicate the flavour of Blue Moon. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently it's generally agreed that a recipe online that uses raspberry artificial flavouring, lemon oil and vanilla pudding mix comes the closest. So goodness knows what is actually in it. That's incredible. Are they... But yeah, according to 2019, <laughs> it is Michigan's favourite ice cream flavour, beating out every more common ice cream flavour, including the US's favourite of cookies and cream. Wow. Are they legally allowed to call it Superman ice cream? Like, is, is DC going to come after them? I haven't found anything... Well, I haven't found anything about them being sued over it. I suspect it is just too established. <laughs> All of Michigan is going to come for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, you do get similar 
similar things in other parts of the US. Um, there's one in Wisconsin called Super Madness, which is blue raspberry cherry and vanilla. <laughs> and the, there's one made by UDF in Ohio, which feels like it's cheating, which is just vanilla and cherry. The oh. blue and yellow are both vanilla. Oh, what? Which is absolute cowardice. No, you can't trick people into thinking there's three flavours. <laughs> so, yeah, that is... Oh, that flavour's called Super Moo, by the way. <laughs> so that that is Superman ice cream. And right. I would absolutely love to try some. Yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> not as far as I can tell, not really available outside of Michigan, but very available in Michigan. Okay. So we're going on an ice cream trip to Michigan. Mm. I'll I'll put it on the list. <laughs> so thank you for listening. As I said, you can support the show at patreon.com slash bread and thread, where you can get access to a Discord server as well as monthly recipes. I think after the soup talk, it is probably going to be garlic soup for September. We've got to have a, a September soup. Got to have a September soup. Um, we also uh have a twitter where you can see uh teasers for upcoming episodes i think it might have to be the sheet mosaic for this one um you can see uh, the pictures of things that we talk about on the podcast and you know just food pictures of things sheep and ice cream that we reblog yes but not at the same time and you will also find us on Tumblr, where we are Bread and Thread. On YouTube, where we are also Bread and Thread, and where you can find YouTube versions of our audio episodes. Yeah, that has that slowed down a little bit since Nick and I are both working full-time now, but we're, we're trying to get back to it. We're prioritising transcribing over that. Understandable. Because transcripts are an accessibility tool, so that's more important. And you can at breadandthreadpodcast at gmail.com if you want to tell us your favourite kind of sheep or suggest an episode or local ladder. Or 100% contact so us however you want with your favourite kind of sheep. I have to know. Yes. Do I have a favourite sheep? Oh, of course I do. It's the South Down. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I no, think it might be the Wensleydale. Oh, I can't decide. <laughs> the Wensleydale is very good. I think just for like Lancashire pride, mine has to be the Lomp. Oh, I do like a Lomp. <laughs> they've got they've got little cow pattern faces and curly whirly horns. Okay, please let us know yours. <laughs> and with that. <laughs> Thank you for listening, and we will see you next time. Bye.